Well, thanks uh, for being here this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our look at this letter uh, that Peter wrote to a church that was under very great persecution. The persecution that Peter is writing about and the church is experiencing was not the imperial persecution of Rome under Nero. That came a few years later. This persecution that he's talking about was an earlier one that was happening to people locally uh, in their cities and towns and villages as folks became uh, Christians, as they converted to the Christian religion. Um, it put a strain on relationships and families, so people were losing their jobs. It was very, very, uh, very personal. They'd lose their jobs. They'd lose their families. Families were disowning uh, people who became uh, Christians. Uh, and they were suffering greatly because uh, it impacted all the areas of their life. It could have affected their, their finances, their money, and certainly their family relationships and friendships. And so Peter writes this letter to talk to them, to encourage them to remain patient and steadfast during their suffering. And it's hard, as we've been talking about for us in the West, here in the United States especially, uh, to get our head around what it's like to really suffer. We don't suffer in this country the way these uh, people did. Now, we suffer in other ways. People get diseases, they have family problems and things like that. But we don't generally suffer as Christians because of our Christianity. And in some ways, that's not good for us. It makes it a little bit more difficult for us to relate to uh, this book of First Peter. But I'm going to do my best to try to bring it to uh, our context and where we live because I think that the days ahead, uh, as I've said to you, every Sunday since the election cycle began, no matter who you vote for, uh, the United States is going to lose this year. Uh, we have two, two very terrible, horrendous candidates, both of them. And so whoever you pick, uh, you know, good luck, as John Calvin used to say. Um, there's going to be some hard times ahead, and perhaps uh, it's going to be good for the church. I personally believe it's going to be some very good times, perhaps the best times we've ever had in the United States for the Christian church as we lose our privileged place at the political table. And that's my prayer. So your pastor's praying that we lose our privileged place at the political table. Now perhaps you're praying the other way, and that's okay, you can, we'll see who wins um, in that battle. If you have your Bibles, open them to First Peter, and we're going to read these verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed in your bulletin, and so you can look at that. And again, I'll read... Uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 3 this week and read down to verse 12. So hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. I think my favorite novel, uh, like many of you, I love to read, and so I'm always trying to read something, a novel, or in fact, I have several books I read at the same time. Some of them are novels, some of them are other, you know, biblically, theologically oriented things. But I think my favorite novel of all time, something I've read probably 20 or more times, is uh, The Book A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And the opening line is familiar to almost everyone, even if you've never read it. Let me read it to you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In this opening paragraph, which is probably not arguable, that it's one of the most famous in literature, Dickens perfectly uh, describes the tension of living in an age of chaos. An age where you have people in societies that are separated, you have people that are very privileged, very powerful, have all that they could ever need, like us in the West, in the United States, Uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then you can turn your TV or radio on and you can flash directly to Aleppo, Syria and see the most degrading horrors ever imagined. 65 million people in the last five years have been moving and migrating across the lands of this earth from Europe to the United States, everywhere. There's a mass migration. And this is one of literally thousands of mass migrations that have occurred in the history of humanity. This is nothing new. It's just that now we're more aware of it because of the Internet and because of TV and radio and everything else under the sun. We see it all. It's all right before us. And so Dickens is explaining what it's like to live in these best of times and worst of times, times of light, times of darkness. We're all going to go to heaven. We're all going to go the other way. It is uh, really amazing. And he's, in, in some ways, he's echoing Peter and Paul and even Jesus our Lord in their 
insistence that we live in a world that is suffused, if you will, with tension. People grew up, I had my little granddaughter, three years old, and I'm holding her, I'm looking at how cute she is and how pretty and all that, and she's better than any of your children. And, um, you know, and so, you know, you're looking at these children, and then at the same time, I'm visiting my uncle in the hospital in Dallas, who's 77 years old and is suffering with multiple diseases. We know what it's like to live in that tension, in that tense world. And if you've not felt it, you will. And probably as you grow older, you'll see it more and more in your life. And Peter and Jesus and Paul and James, all of the apostles, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, all witness to this tension. And Christians are to live not above and beyond the tension, but in the very thick of it. And the thing that separates, supposedly separates us from other people is how we handle that tension. Do we go around with the artificial, oh, I'm happy, everything is wonderful, I'm so happy, how are you doing? I'm great, I'm wonderful. A mask. A lie. Or do we go around all the time like Eeyore? Oh, you know, I've got to eat dirt. I've got to eat, you know, weeds, and, you know, I'm no good for nothing, I'm a war. Do we do the, either one of those? Or do we find some happy place in the middle? None of that is biblical. The biblical writers, the biblical characters, the biblical authors all lived 100% in tension. They suffered mightily and they expressed it fully in laments, in cries, in disappointment with God. They were honest. And at the same time, they let their hearts go free to rejoice in Him even in the midst of those trials, even when it was the darkest, even when it was the most desperate. And listen to me, Americans, It is going to get dark. It's going to get desperate. And maybe not politically. Maybe we'll win and they will crown us king of the world. Donald Trump said, I'm going to protect all you Christians. Yeah, good luck with that. I'm going to protect you. Who does he think he is? And the other one doesn't even pay attention to the Christians. Could care less. So if you don't wake up, I'm here to tell you, I'm your pastor, I care about you, wake up. We're going into some hard times. And strengthen your heart. Know, and you know what? It may be the best thing for us. It may be the best. Don't be afraid. I told you, do not fear. And I'm saying it again. Do not be afraid. Go vote, do your, do your political duty, but don't be afraid. We are not going to lose. And you'll see that as we talk about this this morning. Three things very quickly. First of all, we're going to look at the continuity that Peter expresses with the past. The continuity with the past. Secondly, we'll look at suffering and joy, how they interact. And finally, we're going to look at prophets and angels. So very simple outline here. Continuity with the past, suffering and and joy, and prophets and and angels. So let's look first of all with a continuity with the past. This is the gospel of salvation by grace. Unfortunately, if you've been in church any time in your life, you you will have been told that uh, uh, things like this: God helps those that help themselves. You know, we got to do our best. We got to try hard, and all of that, which is all true. You do need to try hard, and God does help those that help themselves. 
But the reality is that what eventually creeps in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is an idea that we are dealing with God somehow by our good moral doings, by our merit. That somehow God is weighing people in a scale and saying, you know, if your good outweighs your bad, then you're safe. And that is never the way the Scriptures explain our relationship with God. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. The Old Testament is just as rich and full and thick with grace as is the New Testament. And unfortunately, we think that God dealt with people in the Old Testament one way and that He's dealing with people in the New Testament days in another way. He was a meanie and a bad, wrathful God, angry in the Old Testament. Now He's nice and, and He's wonderful in the New Testament he's all love and daisies and flowers and butterflies and that kind of thing and go read Matthew 23 seven times Jesus curses people woe to you scribes and Pharisees woe to you hypocrites on the outside you look like whited sepulchers like a grave that's been painted white but inside you're full of dead men's bones and every evil thing and that was the nice thing he said The God of of the Bible, old and new, always has dealt with people according to grace. Concerning the salvation, look at verse 10. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was was yours searched and inquired carefully. There has always been one community of people, folks, always one humanity that has always been dealt with, according to God, his relationship with that humanity has always been one of grace. Listen to this from the Westminster Confession. And I've paraphrased this pretty heavily just to make it understandable. But listen, covenant or reformed theology insists on one humanity saved by grace through faith, a single covenant of grace extending from Genesis to Revelation. This is from the Westminster Confession, chapter 7. The covenant relationship unfolded in many stages through biblical history, but the various stages are aspects of one unified covenant in Christ. Believers, now listen folks, believers before Christ's incarnation, before he was born, were looking ahead to the coming Messiah and to uh, the, the salvation coming in Christ. New Testament believers, that's us, were looking back at the redemption completed by Christ's death and resurrection. This covenant of grace has always been the only divine ordained plan for salvation from sin. God never justified any human being ever on this earth, ever, by works. Ever except for one. Jesus Christ was justified by His good moral doing, by His works, by His righteousness. It was so indestructible, so incredibly powerful. His own personal righteousness, His merit, was so unbelievably strong that the grave could not hold Him. It could not bind him. 
Death could not hold him. That's why he rose from the dead. Do you think God was doing him a favor when he raised him from the dead? No. He saw the righteousness of Christ through his life, through his death on the cross, and into the very grave. And by his righteous moral doings, Jesus Christ conquered death hell and the grave for us as I told you in past weeks as us as our substitute he lives for us now and so we must never go to God never and hold out our good works and say look how well I'm doing we just cannot do it the entire Bible testifies against us doing that and requires us to go gently and humbly and with hearts filled with thankfulness that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He has indeed saved us from our sin. And it's that gratitude, that deep, I don't know how to describe it, but when it finally clicks inside of your soul, that that's how you stand before God. Your heart is filled with love and a desire to serve Him. People have come to my office and they've said to me, Chuck, I don't understand you. You say we don't have to do anything. You just get it by grace. Is there nothing that we have to do in order to get... And I tell them no. And they say to me, you mean I can do anything I want? And I say, yeah, go do whatever you want. What do you want to do? That's my question back to you. What do you want to do? Well, I want to serve God. Well, good for you. Go and serve Him. God bless you. Go do it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you fail, repent and believe the gospel. Wasn't well, that going to make me lazy? Well, I don't know. Maybe you're lazy already. I don't really know. But I mean, my goodness, is it, is, are you obeying God because if you don't, He's going to crush you and kill you? Are you, are you obeying God because you, because you owe Him something? Ask yourself that question right now. Are you obeying God? Are you serving Him to get something from Him? Or are you obeying Him because of Him? Because you love Him? It's like the story of the guy that goes to, to his, he goes and buys his wife a bouquet of flowers. And he goes to the house at night, rings a doorbell, because he wants to surprise her with the flowers. It's not her birthday, it's not their anniversary, it's nothing. He just buys her the flowers because he wants to, right? He rings the doorbell. She comes to the door. Oh, honey, how sweet you bought me flowers. Why did you buy me flowers? Well, I owe it, I owed it to you. You know, he's probably not going to get in the door with that, right? Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, I owe it to you. Uh, but what happens if he shows up with the bouquet of flowers and he says... You know, you know, the wife says, it's not, you know, it's not our anniversary, it's not my birthday. Why? And he says, because you're the most amazing, the most lovable, the most sweet, the most gorgeous. Hey, he's, he's in for a good time. <laughs> you, you, see what, you see the difference. Why do we, and I told you last week, I had to face this myself. When I first became a Christian, I realized later, to my shame, I have to say, that I was serving him because I wanted to get something from him. I was serving Him for what He could do for me. But as I've gotten older and I've suffered, there's no more to get from Him. It has to be for Him. Do you see the difference? And when you can start to work that, massage that down into your life, I want to serve my God, my King. I want to serve the Lord Jesus, not for the blessings, but because He is blessed. For Him, Himself, 
Things begin to change for you. Christianity no longer becomes a strain. It no longer becomes odious and difficult and hard and, and grievous and weighty and, oh, I've got to be a Christian. I'm so, it's so hard, it's so hard. No, it becomes a delight. I delight to bring you these flowers. I delight because you're beautiful and wonderful in and of yourself. Whatever happens to me, whatever suffering I endure, doesn't matter. Whoever gets elected president, I'm okay. I'll be all right. If all my money's taken away, I mean, if they tax me into the grave, I'll still be all right because whether I live, Paul said, or whether I die, what? I belong to Christ. Do you believe that? See, I don't think we really do. I think that American Christians believe that as long as we have enough people on the Supreme Court to protect us, all will be well. There you go. See one that believe it. And I know you don't, Sarah. Yeah. Do you really believe that? Well, we've got to protect the Supreme Court, otherwise we won't be. Do you honestly believe that? If you do, I beg you to go back and read your Bible. I beg you. Because righteousness is always God's top priority, not the Supreme Court of the United States. Can I get an amen for that at least? Come on, folks. Is it important? Well, of course. There's lots of things that are important. You know, there are, we could list them all morning. We could stand here and list things that are important. And maybe that would be one of them. Who gets on the Supreme Court? But on your list, if you're going to put something at the top, what are you as Christians going to put up here at the very top? How does holiness sound to you? How does righteousness sound? How does mercy sound? Are you listening? These are priorities. And you should thank God that that's what you're hearing this morning and not a bunch of gobbledygook about politics, right? Those are the things that matter to God. And he has been around through many, many governments and many institutions. They have come and gone, and some of them he has blessed, and some of them he has cursed to death, and, and they'll never exist again. And let's pray that our church has the courage, please, has the courage to stand up for righteousness and goodness and holiness in the face of ongoing evil in our country. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? Can I ask you who's going to do it? Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that, at least for a minute. All right, so the continuity with the past. The gospel is by is always been old and new, always been salvation by grace. God deals with people, with nations, with, with ethnicities. He deals with us based on grace. And when it comes to His people, He especially deals, He's like a parent with His children. He's kind and merciful and loving. Does He discipline? Of course He does. Who's the son that does not receive discipline from a father that loves him? Does he, does he uh, uh, cause you to, to suffer as a judgment to you, as a penalty for your bad doing? Never. If you know anything about the cross of Jesus, you know that all of God's wrath was laid on Christ alone. And so whatever happens in your life, you can say this, at least this, I know there's a lot of scenarios that we could talk about, but at least you can say this, whatever is happening to me, it is not because God is displeased or hates me. You know that. That's for sure. 
So whatever else is going on in your life, and I know I wrestled with this. I've had two, two major cancers in the past five years. And I know the minute the doctor told in fact, every time I go to the doctor, he tells me I have cancer. I'm going to quit going. And the first thing that came in my mind, guess what it was? What did I do? And I had to take hold of my soul and I'd say, you know, soul, are you, are you listening to yourself? <laughs> no, it's not because of that. God means good to us, even in our suffering. And Peter and Paul and Jesus all testify to that reality. And so if you let suffering... Suffering is either going to harden you, as we talked about, I think, a week or so ago. It's either going to harden you or it's going to make you soft and spacious and kind and gentle. And you're going to experience, if you're, if you're any kind of a human being, and especially for Christians, you're going to experience sympathy. You're going to feel for others who are suffering. And if you're any kind of a person, you're going to feel empathy you're going to feel as them you're going to be able to put yourself in their shoes and say you know I know how they feel I understand that I've been through something similar to that do you see what I'm saying suffering should change us to the good side not the dark side and if it's change if suffering is making you more angry more bitter more callous more hard you know as you watch politics and you see the TV here I go again if you see that and it starts to get you angry and riled up or one of the candidates is up there and he's trying to get you mad and angry and riled up beware those are not Christian emotions anger for righteousness is a Christian emotion but not anger at some of these other things they are not do not be deceived. Well, let's move on to the next one. The basis of God's loving, forgiving, His relationship to all of us is always about grace. It's always about His character and not yours. Your character is what He's working on. Your character is what He's molding and shaping through learning, through the church, through sermons, uh, through suffering, especially any of you that have suffered, you know you learn more when you're suffering than almost any other time of your life if you're willing to let it work in you the way it is supposed to. Let it have its work. We suffer as He did, the Bible tells us, not to redeem mankind. We're not suffering in order to redeem mankind like Jesus did. We're suffering for the sake of others whom He redeemed. Did you hear that? We're suffering for the sake of others. This is what makes your heart spacious. Somebody's mean to you? Okay. You love them back. You bless those that curse you. You give your love and your heart to those who may hurt you. It's not safe. You may get hurt. Welcome to the real world. But if you're going to push everyone away that hurts you, guess what? Within a very short time, you're going to be alone. And you're going to hate yourself. To love is going to cost you. To suffer with children that are off the rails or a job that's difficult or in a marriage that's struggling is going to cost you. Will you do it? Will you suffer for Christ and for His sake, for His people? If you will, 
then we become salt and light. That's when we become salt and light. Not when we go shop at Chick-fil-A. Okay? All right. Suffering and glory, the pattern. This is the pattern of the Redeemer and his redeemed. Look at verse 10. The prophets who prophesied were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. There you have the tension that so many authors have written about. The tension of suffering and the tension of glory and how those two fit together. They do not fit together in some dilution of 50-50. They do not. They're not in the middle somewhere. Suffering is 100% and glory is 100%. I don't know how that works and neither does anyone else. You can read the commentaries. Nobody really gets it. But that's the reality. We are going to suffer and we are to embrace that suffering with, with vigor and understanding that this is the world we live in and at the same time with incredible joy and power that undergirds that. It flows, like I said last week, like a river underneath all the suffering that's on the top. And it pins you down. It's like an anchor to your soul, the joy of the Lord. The gospel, uh, Dr. Edmund Clowney says this in his commentary, the gospel, old and new, is counterintuitive. It's not like anything else. What appears weak is strong. The way up is the way down. Our suffering is not, listen folks, it is not a sign that Christ has betrayed or forsaken us or that he is no longer Lord. Rather, it is a sign of our fellowship with the risen Christ who first suffered for us. Think about your suffering. Think about what you may be going through, whatever it might be, however small or however great. What if you were able to shift your thinking And embrace the idea that this suffering is not because Christ doesn't love me, but this suffering is here to serve my good. Now, is that going to be easy? No, you're going to have to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, probably throughout the suffering. When it dawned on me what was going on in my life, I've been wrestling with it till today, this morning, and a few seconds ago. I wrestle with it, and you will wrestle, but at least wrestle with it. At least give it a go. Don't just give up and throw up and say, oh, God's doing something, I can't, I can't take it, He must hate me, He must not love me. No, He loves you. Shift your thinking. Shift the way you're looking at your suffering. And don't be afraid. And see what will happen. It's counterintuitive. The gospel is always counterintuitive. Very quickly, in this, Peter says... You rejoice. We read this last week, a few weeks ago. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you as, to, as if to test you, as though something strange were happening. He's saying, don't be surprised. We live in a world that is filled with evil. Suffering is part and parcel. It is universal to all human beings. And I I have a dozen scriptures there, but we don't have time to read them all. Matthew Henry said this, listen, we must not think it strange if the best men meet with the worst treatment. We must not think it strange. But this is cheering that the word of God is not bound. You see, you have hope 
even in the midst. Suffering is universal. The question, folks, is not whether or not you're going to suffer. You're going to. The question is, what will you do in that suffering? Are you going to deny it and put on a happy face and be, you know, put on a mask and come to church all happy and all that? Are you going to become Eeyore and just be down in the dumps and God hates me and I'm a worm, you know, he just doesn't love me anymore and I don't know, maybe he doesn't have the power to take care of this? Or are you going to embrace both halves and become a whole person? rejoicing in our suffering, seeing it for our good and His glory. So when people ask me, how are you doing? I usually tell them, I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. And then I tell them my problems. And that's when they want to get away. Oh, I didn't know you were going to really tell me the truth. Yeah, I'll tell you the truth. But I will tell you this. He has not left me nor forsaken me. Right? I mean, I know that. And if I die... I go to a better place. If I live, you all will continue to be blessed. <laughs> all right, I'm joking. I'm trying to get a little, you know, I know this is a heavy subject. So, okay, let's finish it up. Prophets and angels. What about this privilege of living in the last days? We've been talking about this. We're living in the last days. The last days may run for another 20,000 years. But we are lived. The day Jesus ascended from the Mount Olives and went back into heaven, the last days started. And we have been living in those last days for 2,000 years. And we may continue to live in the last days for another 50,000 years, no matter what the prophets on TV tell you. Those guys are nuts. So don't listen to them. Listen to me. I'm the one that knows. last days are these days. They're the days we live in, the days the church lives in. They are the last days. And Peter and Paul and even Jesus said, these are the best of times for us. They are the times when you can actually be light to the world, that you can actually be salt. There are people sitting right next to you that are in pain, that need you. Are you going to reach out and take a risk and help them? Are you going to? That's the question. Are you going to stand up for what you believe? The privilege of living in these last days, the best of times, if we embrace that truth, folks, we can actually be what we're supposed to be in the world around us. The reason that that this generation is ignoring the church is because we're just like them. Why should they pay any attention to us? We're no different. And in order to be different, we're going to have to be strong in our suffering and rejoicing in what, the, what God has provided for us, which is real, true joy and salvation that you cannot buy. We quit bartering with God and dealing with Him as if we had the means to pay Him back. Folks, we do not have the means to pay Him back. You can give your entire life to Him and it's not the same as what His Son gave. You can't put yourself on that level. You just can't. And so therefore, we must deal with Him according to grace, the privilege of living in these last days. Jesus said, Truly I say unto you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. He was talking about John. Yet, the one who is least, that's us, in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Why? Because we are living now. 
We don't want to live in yonder years. Oh, if we could just go back to the 50s, if we could just go back to those good old days. Those good old days were only good for a certain group of people. They weren't good for everybody. And it's hard to understand that, but it wasn't good for everybody in the 50s. It wasn't good for everybody in the 1920s, the roaring 20s. There were still poor people, even though there were the roaring 20s. There have always been suffering. There has always been poor. And depending on who you are and where you are, that makes the difference. Can you lift yourself out of it and become something different? Peter and Paul and Jesus all insist that we do that. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus did the unthinkable. Nobody imagined how he would turn weakness into strength. And what he did was he said, I will give my life for you. The only religion in the world where the God of that religion says, I give myself for you. Every other religion, the God says, you die for me. You give your life for me. You serve me. You bow down to me and you do for me. Only Christianity, only authentic, historic Christianity says that God says, me for you, my life for you. I lay down my life for my friends. There's nothing like it. And that can change your suffering. It can give you true joy instead of artificial, happy, clappy, fake Christianity. can give you true joy. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank You. We know that we're living in some hard times. And uh, although we haven't felt the effects of it, I know that those days are coming, Father. Days when we have got to stand up as Christians and uh, actually be what we are meant to be. Please help us to do it. Even in this small church, Father, with uh, our, our, our little congregation, we pray that you will make a start with us. Start here. We can't point our fingers and say, look what they do or look what they do. We have got to start inside ourselves. Please help us, Father, to be those people. We ask that you would come and commune with us by the power of your Spirit now in the Lord's Supper. Feed us in our hearts by faith, we pray. Amen.